Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. I'm better at putting together the talks than I am at selling them. (laughs) (laughs) So here it goes. So we're all born with an innate psychobiological drive to bond with uh, adults around us for care and support. And the most important uh, manifestation of that is the sense that we are being seen in the eye of the other, that we matter in the mind of our parents, that we register in their consciousness, that we are being monitored in some way. When that happens in a reliable way where we, the whole job of the infant is to constantly uh, make bids for attention through various gestures, sounds, cries, movements, eye contact, and so forth. The child's infants are constantly issuing bids for attention. And when they get their bids for attention met uh, in a reliable fashion, it creates what's called object constancy. Object constancy is an important developmental milestone. Uh, It's the sense that a child has that when a mother or father Um, are no longer in sight or in view, the knowledge that that doesn't mean that the parent has disappeared, that the parent is still available, and that there's a sense that the child still feels cared about and supported. When children have secure attachment, this object constancy creates what's called a secure base that allows infants to confidently explore the world around them And over time, object constancy, the felt sense that we matter, that even though we can't see all the time the person who's taking care of us, there's this um, sense that we are still important to other people. And uh, what happens is then we internalize the helpful qualities of the caregiver. We start to be able to um, essentially self-soothe and we become able to appreciate our own developmental achievements and we begin to be further capable of exploration and turning towards strangers and so forth. Children who have a secure base in the strange test, which is done when infants are about a year and a half, um, the those who have a secure base are the children who after the mother leaves the room, the child turns to the stranger and starts interacting and is confident that the caregiver will be supportive. And according to great American psychologists such as Kohut and Kantian, if you have the sense of object constancy that you matter in the mind of another, it helps us develop self-esteem for life and it helps us develop the rituals and routines of self-care, according to Kantian. 
most important thing about object constancy is that it's sensed. It's not like a story we walk around in our head with, I'm important, therefore I can explore. You know, infants at one and a half don't even have inner dialogue going on. It's just a felt sense of being important to someone else, being seen, being uh, maintained in the other's eye, that we are seen, that we are in some way uh, matter to them. If we don't have object constancy, if the child feels a degree of uh, anxious or avoidant attachment or even um, fearful attachment, the child will either fear abandonment and when the mother is not visible and will essentially stand by the door waiting for the mother's return, unable to explore, unable to confidently engage with the stranger in the room. Or the other possible outcome is that the child will become completely indifferent to the caregiver and essentially avoid any kind of connection and will seek at a very early age to become self-reliant, to self-soothe always through toys rather than um, having a sense of other people care about it. And the anxious child to gain a greater degree of, to try to mitigate for the lack of object constancy, the anxious child will ramp up his or her emotions to be seen. Whereas the avoidant child will do the exact opposite. That child will shut down their emotions because they no longer believe anyone will notice them. And emotions are first and foremost in childhood a way to gain connection. They're bids for attention as well as survival impulses. So the sense of another is absolutely necessary and vital. And at times of when we don't have a feeling in our adult lives that we matter to others, that we are being seen, that we're important, uh, certain um, extremely uh, deleterious, I don't know why that word came up in my mind, but uh, uh, certain unhealthy uh, uh, physiological, psychobiological events take place, uh, chronic stress, hypervigilance, unending activation of the sympathetic nervous system, the mind races, and um, they're, the more emotionally isolated adults feel, uh, studies show uh, 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 greater degrees of insomnia, anxiety disorders, diminished immune system function, and lesser veg, uh, ventral tegmental firing, which is the reward center of the brain. So people over time, if they don't feel they matter to others, begin to experience what's called anhedonia, the inability to experience joy and pleasure in their life. The presence of loneliness within a five-year span, according to the research of Cochiopo, is the single greatest predictor of... Um, decompensation, the inability to function well in the world. And Hunt Lonestead showed in a meta-analysis of 218 studies with a half a million people in these studies that lonely individuals are emotionally isolated. Individuals experience a 50% greater likelihood of 
death in any five-year period of time than those who feel emotionally seen. So the single most beneficial uh, practice we can do to our, our, um, our own well-being, uh, both physical and emotional health, is to stay well-connected with others who we believe care about us. When in times we are separated from attention, uh, we create <coughs> essentially uh, the feeling of someone being there as a compensation to protect ourselves from the vulnerability of feeling emotionally isolated and not seen. In childhood, one of the first uh, mm. developmental achievements of independence, the child claims from the environment what's called a transitional object. Very often it's a blanket or a toy, a piece of cloth, and the child carries it around, and that cloth is a physical representation of the absent mother, the unavailable caregiver. And the child, when it has to be alone or move through a space where it doesn't feel seen, then claims that object as a way to empower it and create the feeling that she still is with the caregiver because she feels the object with her. Eventually, children transition from that object to inner speech, which people start to develop thought, internal thought, by repeating in their heads the verbal commands that their parents give them. So they're creating the sense that their parents are with them in their minds. It's a wonderful study by Vygotsky who showed that inner thought, inner chatter, starts as simply a repetition of the kinds of instructions that our parents gave us when we were very young, around the age of two or three. For some of us, that might be pretty scary news that we're carrying, that the origins of our thought were just repeating the words of our parents in our head. But that's a way we essentially titrate or transition into increased independence. We create the sense that there's someone with us by repeating their words in our heads. Nuns and monks in early Buddhism in isolation would externalize their vulnerability when they were meditating alone for extended periods of time. It was a very dangerous endeavor, and they would externalize or project outwards their vulnerability by uh, invariably seeing ghosts and hostile presences. In fact, it was such a concern of early Buddhists that the Buddha developed the practice of Devanusati, which is visualizing protective entities, because he knew that when people are alone or don't feel well connected, the most important thing for them is to create the feeling that there's someone, there's a presence, there's someone or something with a, them. So the Buddha didn't say, there's no talk where the Buddha says to a nun or a monk, don't be stupid, there's no ghosts out there, you're just being, you know, ridiculous. The Buddha doesn't say that. He says, okay, conjure up a protective entity, visualize, bring to your mind, call upon, in your imagination, uh, Deva, an angelic protective being. So the Buddha is acknowledging the need of people when we feel alone or isolated to have a sense that there is a caring other with us. Um, 
in the Buddha's own loneliness, during the six years he spent uh, largely in solitary meditation um, after he studied with Udaka Ramaputra and Akila Kalamas, he went off into the jungle and practiced for a little while with uh, a group of five other Jains or yogic practitioners, but then eventually he went off in solitude and spent the bulk of his practice alone. And he became so lonely that he started to become visited by a tempting uh, visitor called Mara. Mara in Buddhism is this sort of this sort of demonic presence that would suddenly appear before the Buddha and would um, essentially tempt the Buddha to leave the spiritual path and go back home because the Buddha grew up in a very wealthy family and to return to his home and give up this arduous spiritual journey. What's interesting is that I've always found this difficult to believe, but it seems that nobody but me noticed that Mara, this figure that the Buddha created in his imagination, is almost an identical representation of the Buddha's father, Suddhodana, who would say the exact, almost identical things to the Buddha, give up, don't pursue your spiritual path, and so forth. And when I put this in this book I wrote, the Buddhist publishing house was like, Oh my God! <laughs> well, I can't believe nobody's pointed this out before. I was like, somebody has to. That's not. It's so fucking obvious that Mara is an internalized projection of the Buddha's troubled relationship with his father. But maybe it's because I grew up not only in a Buddhist family but a Freudian one that I never truly uh, separated the two. So yeah, uh, the Buddha created a. Um, a sort of a very negative externalization of his father that he projected into this this demonic presence, Mara. And the Buddha, when he became enlightened, called upon the devas to counteract the temptation and the, the doubt of Mara and slapped the ground and, and called for the devas to witness his enlightenment. So the Buddha didn't vanquish the illusion of Mara. The Buddha simply called upon his own positive internalizations of other people and then projected them into angelic beings. Um, in people who grow up with disorganized attachment where they're scared of the caregiver, the caregiver is overwhelming, persecutory and uh, invasive, are extremely susceptible in later life to have externalized uh, parental sort of invasive figures. These are the people that invariably claim UFO sightings, aliens, Soviet spies, and so forth. They become extremely susceptible to um, essentially the belief that they're constantly being monitored because it's simply an externalized representation of their own attachment experiences. So the Buddha, uh, oh wait, before we jump to that, um, when isolated individuals spend an exceedingly long time with, during, with lack of com companionship, such as solo mountain climbers, sailors, endurance athletes, and so forth, it's invariably the result that they create 
an external presence to uh, keep them company on the journey. Uh, where it, obviously the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks, where he turns the volleyball <laughs> into as Finn Wilson, yeah, exactly. That's like a classic because without the sense of there being another presence, they, we decompensate. Nothing leads to essentially psychosis faster than simply plop somebody who's very well self-regulated and very well uh, balanced, plop them in solitary confinement, leave them there for about four or five days and voila, you have psychosis. Unless they are capable of creating the soothing presence of another being with them through journaling and so forth. Uh, when Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic, it was a really long, arduous flight. It was uh, uh, many days and he subsequently noted in his writing about the experience, he said, in quotes, the fuselage behind me became filled with ghostly presences, vaguely outlined forms riding with me in the plane, conversing and advising me, discussing problems with my navigation, and always reassuring me and providing me messages of importance to keep in mind. So Lindbergh, because of his obviously... Uh, he had a secure attachment early on in childhood. He managed to project outwards in this trip a soothing presence that came to his aid during this extended, uh, very, very dangerous endeavor he took upon himself. So why are there, though, sometimes people can uh, create a great deal of persecutory figures that are in no way helpful and are, in fact, can be... Um, uh, manifestations of extreme uh, psychosis. So what leads to that? Well, the chief culprit is uh, dopamine, interestingly, uh, very often. Uh, human beings have the capability of seeing patterns, spotting patterns, even in dense, chaotic environments. So, for example, uh, we have a, an, an incredible capacity to spot animals, other people, while they're moving in dense flora, where most of their outline and shape are essentially obscured by leaves and <clears throat> bush and stuff. So we have this capability of uh, seeing forms and figures and people. That, if you think back upon our original incarnation, Homo habilis, uh, a hominid that existed 2.5 million years ago on the African savannas. And those were, our precursors were from this, for essentially 2.5 million years up until roughly 5,000 years ago, all of our precursors were hunter-gatherers, were constantly foraging for food, and were very vulnerable. They would forage alone and <clears throat> if you were out in the savannah by yourself and there was a sudden rustling of the leaves or movement in a bush there would be two largely possible outcomes the first would be a false positive which would be um, 
you think that there's a predator there, you jump, you start to run, even though it's just the wind. There's very little repercussions for false positives. In other words, you get anxious, worried, your heart races, you release adrenaline, maybe trace amounts of cortisol, the sympathetic nervous system that mobilizes you, engage, there's action potential, but then eventually it all subsides in about 18 minutes and you're still alive, even though there wasn't a predator there. But what's the worst possible outcome that would happen? Well, the exact opposite. You go, oh, that's just a breeze. And it's actually a predator and you wind up a wild boar's lunch or you know something that could kill you i don't know wild boar came to mind um so that's the worst thing that could happen to you from a survival uh, evolutionary standpoint so obviously it's in our interest to see things that aren't there to stay safe rather than assume that there's nothing there and the very capability that allows us to do that is uh, partially the fusiform gyrus and uh, other areas of the, um, in the, not the temporal, the parietal lobe. And um, if people have excessive amounts of dopamine, then it increases the rate of firing in those regions that spot and see patterns and see shapes and see other beings. So it increases our pattern recognition. And where what situations raise dopamine? Schizophrenia, paranoid psychosis, uh, bipolar disorder, disorder, and uh, those who are addicted to stimulants such as crystal meth and cocaine. All of which, uh, if you've ever uh, met uh, people in sobriety who spent a extended period of time in the manic episodes of coke or meth addiction everybody will have a story of seeing spies or being followed or sensing other policemen or uh people following them because it activates dopamine which creates the felt sense of a persecutorial other the loss of attachment figures in childhood or later on in life um there's two, the brain is lateralized. We have two halves, the left and the right brain. The left brain pretty much immediately knows when someone has passed, is dead. And because the left brain is constantly being updated by new facts, new information, it's very contextual, it's very, uh, knows what's happening in our life. The right hemisphere is this timeless realm that <clears throat> simply knows what is experienced and associates people with certain situations and events so the right hemisphere can spend an inordinate amount of time after death someone has died completely unaware that that person has not been away that's why and uh i'm i was born jewish and in jewish tradition there's sitting shiva which is a year-long period that people mourn loss because what they're doing is in the course of a year experiencing all the different situations they associate with the missing mother, father, uh, sister, brother. Um, their, sh their right hemisphere, each occasion is learning 
that that person is not available. The left hemisphere knows that entire year that the person's not there, but the right doesn't. And that's why people, when they lose someone, will constantly sense that the attachment figure is still with them because the right hemisphere is generating the felt sense that, I don't know why I'm doing this with my hand. It's, I'm trying to, for some reason, show you what a ghost-like presence would be. And it's not going to help you in any way. It's just going to look like I'm having some kind of episode. But uh, you get it. In ghost movies, the ghosts are often depicted as an, uh, of something moving just out of sight or just in the background, partially obscured. That is an accurate representation of the right hemisphere, which is largely uh, present in our lives in periphery, not in our focused attention. But people fill in the periphery of sight with right hemispheric and, and occipital load prediction. So very often when somebody's lost, they'll feel the presence of others. Again, I'm doing this with my hand, but just outside of sight. Now I'm going to rest my hands. Um, trauma. When people have a traumatic event, they compartmentalize the experience if they dissociated during the event. They compartmentalize the experience in their right hemisphere, in the right orbital frontal and right temporal lobe. And in, in many cases, that experience or the events of the trauma can be poorly integrated in the left hemisphere. So there can be ghostly presences of abusers or persecutorial others or uh, people who were sexual predators or people who were violent, that person can carry around the sense of that uh, violent uh, figure with them because they never, it, so long as it's in the right hemisphere, the right hemisphere doesn't know that the trauma is closed, it's gone. The left hemisphere knows that, but it takes a long time, interestingly enough, for the right hemisphere to inform the left. We have to do it generally in therapies like EMDR, and other somatic therapies. So that's another reason why people can have the felt sense of another. So, whew, coming to a conclusion, the need for uh, having a protective entity starts in childhood as a, a form of object constancy, as a, a felt internalization of the helpful characteristics of a caregiver, of somebody who supports us. And throughout our life, from the point where we have transitional objects and onwards, even though the bulk of our needs in adult life for that sense of mattering, being seen in the eyes of the other, comes actually from real uh, people in our life, it's helpful to actually be able to conjure in our minds they reproduce those helpful characteristics of secure attachment, which are someone that sees us and cares about us, someone who understands what we're experiencing, can read our emotions, someone who's soothing in their presence that makes us feel safe, and someone who appreciates our developmental achievements, our moving forward, our risks, our exploratory behaviors in studies being done 
by interestingly people like uh, Daniel P. Brown at his clinic. He's also a psychologist at Harvard Medical School uh, and teaches at Harvard. Um, at his clinic, they study the efficacy of visualizations of perfect parental figures and the studies have shown how beneficial it can be in uh, helping people counteract the um, depression, anxiety, and so forth. So in tonight's meditation, what we're going to do is we're going to actually practice the ancient Buddhist approach of Deva Nusati. We're each going to visualize a protective entity that externalizes the best qualities uh, that people have offered us, you know, presented us, provided us in our journeys. And the ability to do this is, I think, of great benefit. So thank you for listening. Hope that was worth uh, schlepping over here in the rain. So find a super comfortable seated position, stretch. And just let's bring our attention to the sensations in the top of the head and then <clears throat> bearing those in mind, the shoulders. Just find sensations in your body that roughly represent where your shoulders are and then sensations you associate with your sit bones and just try to bring them into a nice alignment so that most important is just to lift your chin enough that it counteracts any tendency of your head to uh, drift and fall forward, slouch. We want to just keep this, uh, some energy just there. A little bit like you're lifting your head to look at something on top of a building. And that's all the energy we're going to put in. The rest we're going to just be relaxing and releasing and removing any effort that putting in. If your body's nicely balanced, we really don't have to put much effort into sitting upright. So Bring your attention to the forehead and just imagine you could massage with your mind the, the brow and smooth out and release any tightness there. And then bring your attention to the eyes and encourage the eyes to settle to float behind the eyelids and the eye sockets are like two pools, two warm pools. And just encourage your eyes 
to relax. There's nothing for the, them to look at. And when the eyes settle, when the retinal muscles stop moving, it influences the midbrain to switch us into parasympathetic rest, relax. On the other hand, when the eyes are busy darting around, moving, activates the sympathetic nervous system. So just settling the eyes is a very wonderful self-soothing tool. Releasing any pinching in the mouth by extending the corners of the mouth as apart as you can, creating a very expressionless but relaxed mouth, releasing any clenching in the jaw, moving down into the throat. If you notice any sense of tension like a ball in the throat or anything that cuts off the flow of energy moving up through the body, just breathe into that area and soften. Take a moment, if you like, and just gently rotate the shoulders back to open up the chest. And if your arms are tight by your side, encourage them to, to keep your arms away from being tight to your side. The more your arms fall away from your torso, again, we're trying to keep ourselves out of the startle position, which is not conducive to the goal of being peaceful. And bringing your awareness to the belly, trying to experience the breath energy, the breath, the movement of the breath there. So when you're breathing in, you can first just exaggerate the distension, the expression of the breath, so allow your belly to load out, and then when you breathe out, just release the abdomen. Abdominal breathing is uh, such a benefit to self-soothing. When people are relaxed, that's the area in the body that articulates the breath, but when we're in a mobilized, anxious, or busy state, we tend to breathe into the chest. And then just bringing the awareness to scan down the legs, making them as comfortable as possible, allowing them to sink into the ground. When you breathe in, to the belly, imagine that the energy is arising from the earth up into the belly and it's expanding and then continuing up 
into the upper body and then when you release the out breath imagine all the energy flowing back down releasing every muscle in its journey <clears throat> so the energy returns to the earth to which you're connected and for a little while we'll just sit here in silence and just try to make your ex exhalations as long and smooth as possible the longer the better don't try to push out the air or don't. just imagine you're slowly releasing it We really want to, in this time, land in our lives, which means get to a, one of those times that are the most moving, the most transcendent times or when we no longer are trying to get anywhere. We're no longer driven to achieve but for just a moment, we fully land in our bodies in the, exp the experience as it is. When we open to all the sensations that are present around us in the body. The experience of when we arrive at a destination that we've longed we put down all our bags and we've got nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one or nothing to take care of. Nothing is missing. This is your time to fully become immersed in this moment, which will never be repeated again. Every moment is flying past, never to return. But if we truly connect with the sensations, the sounds, the feelings in the body, the breath, then in some way we each moment then has a legacy it's been witnessed if it's difficult to sit with this experience and without being pulled into a thought don't worry just each time you find that you've been pulled away into images and ideas about things that aren't present right here and right now. Just promise them you'll return to them later. And then gently return to the sensations of your body.
So at this point, I'd like you to, in your mind's eye, the screen in your mind where you can visualize places and objects and people that are not currently present. Bring to mind someone that you associate any individual past or present, real or imagined, could be a figure you've seen even in a movie or but someone you associate with safety someone that when you are with this person you feel less vulnerable send a, a sense of uh, companionship The journey in life or the experience feels easier. And if you can really visualize what it's like to be with the safe figure, to see if you can find in your body some somatic expression, a physical quality that lets you know when you're safe. For me, it can be my shoulders letting down, any tension in the back of my neck releasing and a softening and the muscles in my forehead and the eyes. Just really get to know what it feels like to be safe with someone. They're not gonna go away. They're not going to leave you a vulnerable situation. And then bring to mind someone real or imagined, anyone, any image you can conjure up that you associate with being seen and appreciated, someone who you look forward to telling about any achievement because they would appreciate, acknowledge. Someone when you have exciting news you would want to share it with because they would really be able to listen and acknowledge. If you can feel what appreciation and admiration, acknowledgement is like, just find that sensation in your body. What does that feel like to be seen, positively regarded? It might be an opening of the chest, a sense of energy flowing nicely up from the belly, the sense of confidence. And then lastly, visualize someone who really, when you're going through anything just emotionally challenging, 
they can really see and understand what you're experiencing. Again, someone real or imagined, present or not present, but just visualize what it's like to be with somebody who really is empathetic, compassionate, kind. And what do we feel when we're with the compassionate, the empathetic? Very often a softening in the muscles in the face, a sense of warmth or whatever you feel when you feel really witnessed by another. And then lastly, see if these three qualities of being safe with someone, being appreciated and acknowledged and being emotionally seen and understood if you could just in your imagination without in any way getting in the way just allow yourself to conjure it could be literally a visual depiction of or it could just be the sense of being with an entity a presence that would offer all of these attributes that we need. Seeing if you can imagine what it would be like to be reliably seen, appreciated, soothed, and secure. You hear the sound of the bell, let go of the, any image. See if you can keep with you the sensations in your body, any sensations of 
being seen, appreciated, cared about. If you can sustain any of those that state of being, bring it with you, if you can, into the rest of the evening. <laughs>